You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. The Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in AMP Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. The pod today is with uh, Sarah Rose Cavanaugh, who's been on the pod before. She's the Senior Associate Director for Teaching and Learning at the Center for Faculty Excellence and an Associate Professor of Practice in Psychology at Simmons University. Uh, Her research considers whether the strategies people choose to regulate their emotions and the degree to which they successfully accomplish this regulation can predict uh, trajectories of psychological functioning over time. So her books include The Spark of Learning um, and Hive Mind, which is what she came on to talk to us about. And her new book, which I love and highly recommend, is called Mind Over Monsters, Supporting Youth Mental Health with Compassionate Challenge. I love this pod. I hope you enjoy it. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Essay End. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moment so the ticking stops. Sarah Rose Cavanaugh, welcome back to the pod. Oh, it's so good to be here. Um, okay. As you know, I was profoundly moved by your book. One, I think because I'm married to a college professor and I work also at a theater whose legacy is defined by developing young talent. And then secondly, because you offer an entirely unique take to a conversation that seems to only exist in the polarities, Mm -hmm. that our young people need to be protected from any kind of discomfort or hurt, and that our young people are too coddled and too fragile. And one of the ways you enter this conversation is through metaphor, and that metaphor is monsters. Why? (laughs) Um, Why monsters? Well, I think that because we're living through a sort of monstrous time at Mm -hmm. the moment, and with coming out of the pandemic, and with climate change rearing its head, and 
all of the polarity in terms of politics and all of that that's going on. And so partly because we're living through a monstrous time, partly because monsters really represent, of course, what we find frightening in Mm -hmm. the world, but they're symbols and they're symbols for what we find frightening. And so we like to watch horror movies and read horror books and things and and they're big, scaly, furry (laughs) creatures who are after us, but they're not really, right? They're really about mortality. They're about racism. They're about losing people. They're about our own bodies becoming unruly and deteriorating and rebelling on us. And I think that we go to the movie theater and we pick up books like that to to grapple with those fears. And so when I think about how can we help young people face these monstrous times, I think about facing monsters and some of those lessons. And that's what we have to do. We either have to befriend certain monsters or we have to understand them. We have to face them in the mirror. We have to discover their true nature and as a personal fan of horror, I also just really want to talk about monsters and dig into some monster theory. Yeah, it's it's it weaves the book really, um, really well and, and sort of historically wh- where, where these metaphors have taken place, which I think I understood certainly in my world as an English major. Mm-hmm. But, but but in terms of tying together all these different you know aspects uh, that that you're talking about, it it did it didn't dawn on me, and it it, wor- it works really well. Um, so you write in the book early in the book, quote: "Blame for this mental health crisis among youth has been laid at the feet of changes in parenting practices, of greater willingness to discuss and diagnose mental health sy- symptoms, of economic and social developments that lead to wide disparities in life opportunities." And of course, everyone's darling scapegoat of the moment, the smartphone in their pockets. So that implies that you think, I think what that that (laughs) sense implies is that maybe yes, maybe no to all of that. Uh, Yes. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Yes. I think that it is probably partly all of those things uh, and the degree to which an individual person's mental health has deteriorated is going to be weighted differently, right? All of those things can be weighted differently. And our last conversation together on the podcast was after my book, Hive Mind. And so you know that I think that smartphones can be poor for mental health, Mm -hmm. but that they can also draw people together and be marvelous sources of creativity. And so I think everything is about individual differences and context, and it's all very complex. And so a lot of these things are all woven together and their contributions to mental health. Oh, both things. It's both things. (laughs) No, it's why is it always both things? It's yes and. Or both and. It's this and and. It is. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, that's, and that's what's, that's what makes it so hard because Mm -hmm. it's just easier for everyone if they can just like point to a bucket and say, it's that bucket. Get rid Um, of the iPhones. Yeah. Get get, get rid of those. (laughs) Um, And, but this, this story too is, I mean, you share a lot of your, I mean, it starts with you, right? And, and some of mm-hmm. your experiences. So you're a college professor now. You are dealing with a certain student population that's in front of you, but you also look back to yourself. And, and you you say in the book, quote, for most of the first two years of high school, I didn't speak, mm-hmm. which seems very odd given you human who speaks in front of classes <laughs> and, you know, does public speaking too. Right, right. What happened? Um, so what happened for me and in my individual story 
really led me to the whole crux of the book that I'm sure we'll talk about, which is compassionate challenge. And that is that I was challenged by my college professors, but challenged in atmospheres of compassion. And so I, you know, things wax and wane in people's journeys. And I had a lot of anxiety, a lot of extreme introversion uh, that would get slightly better, slightly worse. But I was always both through high school and college, one of those silent students um, who would get good grades, but not really contribute to the class discussions. And until I started taking women's studies, maybe, uh, courses, sorry, I was a women's studies minor mm-hmm. and my women's studies instructors were very different than my other instructors in two ways. One, they insisted upon participation. There was mm-hmm. no way to get a good grade in the class without participation uh, in whole group and small group discussions. And secondly, the, the nature of the class, they were always so welcoming. There was lots of icebreaker improv sorts of things in the beginning of the semester. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of solicitation of people's stories and individuality and just this sense of community. And just in my personal, and again, every context is important and one's personal values are important. Grades were really important to me. I was a big nerd. Um, And Mm -hmm. I, the grade was more important than uh, my comfort and so mm-hmm. I began participating in only those classes and was met with welcome and <laughs> enjoy. Yeah. And slowly over time, that kind of chipped away, you know, and was an exposure therapy of sorts. And I became more comfortable in those settings. I'm curious, did you, I mean, when you were younger, did you feel, were, did you feel like you were a wallflower? Did you fit in? Did you feel outside? I... I had this uh, very common experience, I think. I don't know if you remember the book in the 80s or 90s, Reviving Ophelia, oh, about yeah. young women. Yes. <laughs> and that that was very much my journey. I was very outgoing as a youngster yep. and was always rallying the neighborhood kids to, to put on plays that mm-hmm. I had written. And and then around puberty is when, uh, when those hormones turned on. And I write about this transition in the book that around puberty, when all these hormones come online, there's a social reorientation, right? And um, both children of all genders go through this, where all of a sudden the spotlight goes outward and you start realizing that everyone might be watching you and peers become so important and evaluation. And it feels like you're under the spotlight and the scrutiny. And a lot of uh, young people then become more interior, And Mm. it's more, I think it happens more in the reviving Ophelia was about specifically how that combined with social norms and social pressures for young women to be docile and, you know, all these things um, amplify that effect. And so that was really my, it was really junior high into the beginning of high school that, that kind of quieting. (laughs) Yeah. I was thinking about this too for myself in terms of like, all right, so where did I, you know, what happened to me? And I realized too that I had a foot in both worlds in the sense that like I was a really, really good soccer player. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, was the best. And so, but I was also youngest of six boys, brothers were all hippies. I sort of moved into that world. So I could do both. So I knew I was going to be picked first at something, you know, all the time. But then also I could do this other thing. And and so that's a unique perspective. And that kind of carried with me 
through all my schooling. And and I remember in college being picked out by this ex-Jesuit monk, Ron Miller, who became my advisor and uh, convinced me to do this independent scholar program, which is something mm. I major. And it was just like, oh, like I, it taught me so much about my ability to craft and curate and and then it have these long conversations with adults about great ideas and great books and and it was really a gift that i think led to you know very clearly what what my career was like but i also recognize like that is rare that like Mm -hmm. like and and even that independent scholar program had three people in it right right yeah and 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 it should be less rare (laughs) and yeah and and i get into this a little bit at the end of the book but uh, any of the advice that's going to come from all these ideas, such as one-on-one mentorship through mm-hmm. these kind of high impact practices like you experienced, is going to be expensive, is going to require right. investment. And but what I mean, what's more important than our youth mental health? Yep. Yep. Uh so uh let let's get into uh the book. And this is the crises and complexities chapter. You mm-hmm. write, quote, if we label all the nine-year-olds who cannot sit still and do math problems for eight, eight hours a day with a diagnosis of attention deficit disorder, we don't have to question whether we should be asking nine-year-olds to sit still and complete math problems for eight hours a day. Beautiful sentence <laughs> nails a huge problem. Right. And I think I think looking at the contexts, right, uh, again, the structures that we're asking people to operate in. And I think that's more broadly true, of course, too, when we look at college students instead of nine year olds. And we ask, why are college students right now so anxious and depressed? And then we look at the world that we're asking them to enter and mm-hmm. and the the structures that we're asking them to enter and and operate under and all of the precarity and scarcity and you know gig culture and <laughs> all these the, the, you know they they have less hopeless security and then layer on all these other monstrous issues and we need to fix the structures and we need to address that if we want our youth to be not anxious and not depressed. And the problem here is there's no sign that anyone is going to fix any of those structures. (laughs) I mean, and I'm talking writ large, right? Like we're we're talking about, you know, we have been, we have known there's a problem in education for so long. We have been known that there's a problem in healthcare for so long. And it's like, and I'm just trying to find the breadcrumbs Mm -hmm. that show me that someone is going to actually do something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a problem. <laughs> it, yeah. it, it clearly is a problem. And I do see pockets of hope in higher education. And this isn't global, but I mean, there really has been a surge in compassionate teaching yeah. in uh, addressing the problem of grading and uh, high stakes testing and all of these things. There are there are wonderful pockets in higher ed that are trying to change some of these things, but that's a small that's a small pocket um, of a larger universe. That's a you know, and then you consider things like healthcare and then it's a lot. It's right. dismaying. Two, two things I want to talk to you about. The first is the idea that we live in an age of anxiety is not um, original by any means, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously, not original. It's, not, it's called age of anxiety that yeah. go back centuries. And you even yep. say the Stoics said we lived in an age of anxiety. Mm-hmm. That's a long time ago. Right. 
yeah, there's always this glowiness when we look back to the past, right? And this feeling that our problems are unique and, and things were more secure in, in the distant past. And, and it's really, it's not true. And that doesn't mean that the challenges we are currently facing aren't terrible challenges. But I think that anxiety has been with us forever. It's part of our bodies, it's part of our biological systems, and it's actually an adaptive part of our biological systems. And so we're never, we're never not going to be anxious. We were anxious in the past, we're anxious now, and Mm -hmm. that's just how it's going to be. Okay, but one of the things that you do talk about that is different now, and I want to dig into this because I think this is powerful. And I was doing a keynote last night uh, for a bunch of educators uh, in Washington, and I actually talked about this idea. And and maybe you should tell the story about your dad because that's what enters into this. But it's this mm-hmm. idea of um, the many ways in which we got hurt. And physically, we're talking about that as young people um, that might not be available to young people. And what you know, you would think maybe from the outset of like, well, no one should get hurt. If you can stop that, that's great. But as I started examining that and I'm like, oh, no, I mean, like, like I learned a lot from being bullied in, in what was still a very safe environment of the school I was in, the community I was mm-hmm. in, and it was never going to go a far farther in a way that that I was ever in real like mortal danger. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, the, your dad's story about the game, I think, yeah. is, is a great <laughs> entry point to this. Yeah, sure. So one of the people I interview in the book um, is my father, and he worked most of his life for uh, this place called Nazareth Home for Boys, and it was a residential home for young boys, mostly up to like age twelve who could no longer be in their homes of origin because of abuse or neglect. And back in the eighties, um, mm. when he was kind of in the heyday of his career, he would play this game with them called manhunt. And this may be familiar to a bunch of listeners because it's sort of like capture the flag. They didn't invent it. Uh, it's played elsewhere, but it's sort of like capture the flag, except it's a little more brutal <laughs> where, um, you can like strike people out by hitting them with tennis balls and, and there's, but there's a collection of rocks or flags or something that you need to steal and there are teams and things like that. And so one of the things he did uh, with the boys who were staying at, at the home is organize very complicated ongoing versions of this game. And the group home is on a very, foresty sort of uh, setting. And so they had maps and teams and the the uh, clients would move up and down in the trajectories based on, on skill and, and things like that. And it, I don't, you know, I don't think they play it anymore. No. <laughs> and I don't think in any group homes, they would be playing it anymore. And you can imagine how many fistfights probably yeah. um, it could, could break out and how many things could go wrong. But these young people were out in the wild, you know, running, feeling powerful. And, and my dad talked very beautifully. I thought about the fact for, that for a lot of these young men that they're, this was the first time that they, they could have power in a pro-social way yes. and that they were so used to growing up and, and, and these, these systems, you know, power always being about violence or or control or um, someone wanting to hurt you. And here it was part of 
of a game. And I, and I think we have this with, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. think we have this with sport organized sports a little bit and, and things like that. But I, I worry that, you know, nowadays I don't know, I haven't visited, but that the boys are inside on their phones, you know, instead of, of running around the pond and, and chasing each other and laughing and, uh, all of these things. And so I think play, you can get hurt during play. Uh, you can Absolutely. get hurt physically, you can get hurt socially, your feelings can get hurt. And yeah, stamping out play altogether, I think in childhood is not a great strategy no, for it, mental health. Right, right, right. And, and I think what you're getting at, which is really a unique thing to talk about, people don't, which is that, um, that, that, we're going to grow up and we're going to get, we're going to get kicked around. We get Mm -hmm. kicked around a lot. So physically, emotionally, it's scary. There's lots of scary things that happen. And, and what we know, and you talk about this in the book, of course, and we'll get to that probably at the end of the podcast about our work at second city, but um, where do you practice? Mm -hmm. Where do you get and 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 there are some things like, like sports you mentioned or improv or whatever, which are these sort of safe models, but even those are where where we know now we have to be very careful about the touching where, yeah. where which was not the case three years ago four years ago which is like you know i mean yes there were things and we step in but it was you you could get a lot more sort of rough in, in in those days and and that is being sort of stripped away and taken away from us and and we wonder and you wonder i think in the posit in the book that like well okay so then what does that mean mm-hmm. when these people then have to enter these spaces that are are wilder and let's mm-hmm. say, right. That's a problem. Right. right. Um, absolutely. And, and, and the touch thing too, it's like, and both with the, the game and with touch, I mean, it's, you know, that, that having that, those, those rules in place and changing things is going to protect people from harm and that really awful things happen if you don't protect people from harm, but yeah. then, at the same time, human touch <laughs> is so vital and and important, and it's such an amazing way that we communicate with each other. One of my favorite social neuroscientists, Jim Cohn, studies handholding and and looks at the brains of people holding hands and how it dials down all of the the threat reactivity when you're under threat. And so it's such it's such a it's such a difficult line to to toe like how do we protect while also not stripping human interactions of some of the most beautiful and important aspects of human interaction so one of the things you also say in the book is quote the principal purpose of our brains is to manage the budget of our bodies Mm -hmm. talk talk about that that's an interesting interesting (laughs) yes I think a lot of this um, chapter comes from the work of Lisa Feldman Barrett, who is a psychologist at Northeastern University, um, but is very consistent with a a lot bigger body of work than just her work. And what our brains are doing a lot of the time is trying to achieve homeostasis, right? Um, Trying to address our physical needs and return us to equilibrium and, what doing that means is making calculated withdrawals and deposits uh, mm-hmm. to that body budget. And when we think about the budget, so instead of thinking about money, we can think about an overall well-being and energy and equilibrium. 
And we're constantly making deposits to that budget and deposits look like sleep, time with social others, human mm-hmm. touch, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, play and, and food and nutrition and just very biological things. And then withdrawals can both be negative in the form of things like stress and anxiety and loss and uh, all of these things that deplete us. But we also make withdrawals when we're engaged in motivated effort, when we're striving for goals, when we go out for a run. Yes, exactly. And and so a lot of our physical health is, is about managing that budget and making sure we're adding enough deposits and not taking out too many withdrawals and we're kind of equaling out. <laughs> but a lot of mental health too, because our brain is part of our body and our body is, and our brain is managing our body. A lot of mental health is making good deposits and withdrawals as well. Um, I think this is not you quoting someone else. I think it's you uh, in the book where you say sleep knits up the raveled sleeve of care. <laughs> That's you, right? I think it might be someone a little older than me. <laughs> is it? All right. Yeah. It's really good. Yep. Well, and, and, and the reason I thought about that, and we talked a little bit before we started taping about this, which was that, oh, and I don't think I ever told you this, like right before uh the shutdown right before COVID. Mm-hmm. So it was March. I was in New York because we were partnering with Thrive and I uh, co-led a webinar with uh, Ariana Huffington. Oh, yeah. And of course, the sleep queen um, and and didn't share with her that my sleep was horrible. Uh, <laughs> so, but it just, but recently in the last like six weeks or so, I've got a new sleep routine. And mm-hmm. while the first few weeks were wild like it was a war going on in my brain when that hmm. was all sort of REM activity right happening yeah we, I, it's really sort of mellowed off now in, in terms of I'm just I am waking up just in a whole different way than I had before and I feel so much better and, and this is another area of of care that I just like I think we all intellectually know it's been said so much that sleep mm-hmm. is we still don't do it yeah Sleep is everything. I, <laughs> you can ask my daughter, you can ask my students, my college students, like in every class I, I go, I'm like an evangelist. I just go, I like go after them. Like you have to sleep. Uh, I really think it is so core to everything, everything. I mean, managing that homeostasis. Uh, I mean, just think about irritability and sleep. It's, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just so clear that we need to sleep better. I think it's one of the most thing, important things that we can add to the budget. Uh, the other um, influence in here, which was something that was huge for me, is Bessel van der Kork's work. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was a book that was gifted to me at a really crucial time, and and has been. And I recommended it to someone yesterday. It was literally so. It was like I've got this friend who's going through a bunch. And I'm like, I think this is the good one to send. Yeah, it might take them a little bit to get through it, but that it's and it's been um, uh, on the bestseller list now for right. Yeah, just forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, forever. So talk a little bit about now. Do you I mean, I imagine that you read this a while ago, or does it yeah? Um, yes. No, I love I love the whole concept of the body keeping the score, which is mm-hmm. the title of the book, uh, and and his main message. And for sure, and he is writing this, I think, without knowledge of the whole body budget uh area, yeah, but no. but talks about 
you know, oh, look at all, all these psychiatric diagnoses. So many of the symptoms have to do with sleep, arousal, digestion, uh, all of these very bodily functions. And it's so consistent with this account of what our, what our brains are for in this deep link between physical and mental health. And, and then his, his main message that when we go through trauma or we have elongated stressors, that even if we have kind of unpacked the experience mentally and cognitively, that our our bodies are still are still processing them uh, mm-hmm. because it has been been such a withdrawal and so much of learning is embodied, and that we need to to care for the body in order to heal um, even more than talk therapy, perhaps. Yeah, and it's just like our Western culture is like <laughs> the culture you and I grew up in. None of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and yet there's other cultures, you know, Eastern cultures that have, that have been all of that. Right. Yeah. It's just so funny. It's like, what, what point? And it's not, it, and we have indigenous cultures in this country that understood this, mm-hmm. that we chose to ignore. Yeah. And, 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 um, and you recognize too, and we talked about healthcare, but in medicine, more and more starting to understand the, the, this aspect of of what it means to be human in our human bodies. Um, and so, I mean, it's it's deeply frustrating, but also represents such an incredible opportunity because, like, we've ignored it for so long, and if we just pay a little bit of attention, we could probably all do much better. Right, right, and and if we can help our young people uh, figure this out earlier. Then, then uh, our young people in this culture figure this out earlier than you and I are. <laughs> yeah. Then um, all the better. Um, my friend Billy Bungaroth was uh, working on the show up at the University of Chicago, and there was a production next to him of Streetcar Named Desire. And he was walking by. Uh, they hadn't started productions yet, and someone was putting up a sign. Mm-hmm. And the sign was a trigger warning. And it said, this production may or may not include a rape. Mm-hmm. Because of course, in Streetcar Named Desire, there might have been something off stage that happens. That that's it. And Billy and I had a long conversation of like, is that ridiculous? Is it actually meaningful? What 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 is it? And I remember both like like on its face, it's something that seemed bizarre, um, and and maybe not as we sort of explored it. And you you talk in the book, you say, quote, no issue has been more ridiculed than safe spaces and trigger warnings. Um, let's dig into that because we. Okay. You as a, a a person in college, me as a person who works in, in colleges, but also in theater, these are things that we talk about all the time and actually were talking about before, mm-hmm. Ma- yeah. maybe with different words. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that trigger awareness is one of those odd topics where on the one hand, it's very polarized. As, yeah. as, as we were talking, it's one of those topics where people have very strong feelings <laughs> in mm-hmm. one or other direction. But it's also odd to me because I, I read a lot about it because I'm curious about it and it relates to my work. And a lot of the time, what I see is people who are so, so-called anti-trigger warning, if you read their pieces, they very often sound pretty pro-trigger warning. Yes, by the end. Yes. yes. <laughs> Thousand percent. Yes. A thousand percent. Jonathan Haidt does that all the time. It's by the end. It's like, well, maybe if you just did this, you mean a trigger warning? Yeah. Yeah. That you don't want to call. And it's fine. Like, I get, like, I know the, 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 uh, there's always bugaboos with words. So mm-hmm. the big one I've been talking about lately is so my wife has got tenure. And that, of course, means now she's on these, um, 
committees, uh, mm-hmm. and, and and one is for um, the head of a department. I won't say which department it is, um, but she's like every single candidate, every candidate, like talks about how important you know, the the work is and the thing that I'm doing. And then at the end, they say, at the end, we're all storytellers. <laughs> it's like if you say that one more time now again it's not that storytelling hugely important we're storytellers we're like like that that is like you're a storyteller i, I get it but like you're cheapening the word by having it mm-hmm. guard and and so i certainly understand that but also just the idea of here's the let's call it this hey could you give me a heads up yes yep. is that, like is that. That, yep. like, the idea of like look hey you know this is like a thing with me if you give me a heads up seems like the I don't know, like the least thing a fairly kind person could do. Right, right. And and people also get into these <sighs> debates about like, well, if you're, you do have to find like every possible thing that could trigger someone in your class, you know, and, the, and that they think that there's this slide or the slippery slope. And I'm just like, like if you're showing a, a clip with a rape in it, if like, it's not you know, the, the main categories of what's going to be really upsetting to people, you can give them a heads up and you can figure it out. You know, I think these yeah. endless tussles about like, what if, you know, someone's trauma related to this object and the object is shown on a slide. Like, that's, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, what we're talking about is, is someone having to unexpectedly confront in a group setting something that could elicit something like a panic attack and, and talking to people on different campuses, you know, I, and, and teaching myself, I have plenty of stories. Um, and I use trigger warnings myself in part, not because I read the research literature and decided <laughs> that mm-hmm. it was a good idea, but because I had multiple instances where, you know, I had a whole thing about suicide early on when I was um, just getting started teaching and had one of my students run out of the room crying and her friends came up to me after and she had lost her brother like the month before to suicide. And And had you known that, of course you would have said something or like, right. Of course. Right. It's, it's on a, on a lighter scale when Anne is teaching comedy history and she's showing the honeymooners, she has to explain that Jackie Gleason is not going to hit her. Hmm. All right. And, and it's like, because but you can't assume these 2023 eyes. <laughs> I just did that. 2023 eyes uh, are, are going to be able to understand the difference. Cause of course that would not go on TV now. Right. In right. any regard, it wouldn't be, it's not funny it, mm-hmm. you know, in that regard. So, so yes. Yeah, so, so giving some sort of co- like context is con- right. bad. context is great. Yeah, heads up in context. I love it. But then we have, and then, and then because we, I don't know why, and again, I'm racking on Jonathan Haidt, who's done some wonderful work mm-hmm. and was very nice to me when I called him to be on the podcast and he said no. He was actually very <laughs> to me. Um, he, he, he had too many people wanting to talk to him. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, um, there's a thing too in your book when you talk about teaching and teachers, and this has actually come up a, a few different times. Um, Successful teachers being highly present. Mm-hmm. All right, and this is such a thing, and I and, and probably soon going to be talking about the end of the chapter, which is a lot. Well, you interview me, and we talk about <laughs> our yep. work. And as I told you before, a little uncomfortable in terms of that. Sorry, <laughs> it's okay. It's good. It's good. It's good. Um, but what we know about our work, and I'll say this about my wife too, is it the teacher, especially because she's so immersed in improvisation, is. She is so highly present with her students. 
Yeah. And and in particular, her young female students, because in comedy, they don't get that. They don't right. get a lot of female teachers who who have that kind of uh, status experience and all that. But that presence allows people to be simply to be seen, mm-hmm. which scratches like the most primal edge. Right. Right. And I was fascinated when I talked to a bunch of students, so for the book and for a larger research project, I was working with an undergraduate researcher, Jasmine Fairpen, and we interviewed 35 students from all different types of institutions all over the country about their best and worst learning experiences. And the, we've been coding the data. And one of the things that was most fascinating to me was this idea of presence. And the students really it really, as a psychologist, was fascinating to me that they seem to be able to check in with almost like the neural landscape of their instructor's minds. And so they would talk about them being there, there, or yeah. Yeah. them being present. And they would talk about the vibe or phoning it in. But it really seemed to be what they were trying to address was was the person here, like in their body, in the moment, mm-hmm. or were they, you know, off distracted, thinking about what they're going to cook for dinner or, and the students seem very able to cue in to when the instructor was present and when they were, were drifting off or just phoning it in. And they saw that as crucial for whether they, they enjoyed the class, whether they felt like they learned, whether they were motivated to do the reading and do the work. It's funny. Uh, I so the last probably six, seven, eight podcasts I've talked a fair amount about my new boss Ed. So I have, mm-hmm. I have a new CEO. I got a new boss Ed, and and I love him. He's great. And I can say this because he does not listen to the podcast. And he, immediately he's like, I don't <laughs> listen safe. to the podcast, and like, and, and I know he's not. He's too busy. He's not going to. So I can talk about him, and it's not sucking up. But one of the things he does when we have our one on ones every week is he moves from behind his desk to a chair across from mm. me. Mm-hmm. He often has his University of Michigan football, which he sort of like, which I love. <laughs> I'm also like, no, no, like I like, I like that you're keeping that busy. And we, and then we almost always start with a non-work thing. So I'm like, okay, it's a either a music thing or a food thing or you know, sports thing or whatever. Um, and, and that's always a very rich, like good conversation. Then we get into our stuff. But he is, and when he's not present, and that will ha- he will be like, I am really sorry. I just had to do this. I have to check in this thing. Goes okay. I'm gonna yeah. be- I'm going to be with you in a moment. And it's like, that's okay. Like, like mark, mark it because I've been in a situation where the other thing is going on and it's just like such a drag. You're like, uh, you know, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. <laughs> You're not there. And then are you going to be there? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then, you know, again, in, in our work and improvisation, I think we should, let, let's flip to this. Cause the, the last chapter is about play and improvisational learning because the, the, the model, the model is that i I am there to save you. Mm. That, is, that is what you are taught as an ad, like that, that every, and everyone is taught that they're there to save the other person. Um, huh. And that orientation and, and, you know, it's everything from the ritual of patting each other's back before you go on stage saying, I got your back, which we all do. We yeah. do it for every single show. We do it for every single workshop. Oh, I love that. Um, yeah. And so there, there, there's that physical act, the words that come out. And then what, what are the sort of behaviors? And, and you, and the thing is, it's not just a ideal you have to do it because there's no script. There is nothing. Yep. You have yeah. nothing but what you offer and then what the person offers back to you. And if you don't see that as the gift it is, you're done. Mm-hmm. And and um, 
And I know it's not physical pain, but I think it's as close to physical pain as you can get if you're on that stage in front of 300 people and you bomb because the other person didn't hold you up or you didn't yeah. hold the other person. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful model for life. <laughs> it's yeah. terrifying, but that's it. But again, yeah. it's both yeah. things. It's both things. Yep. Terrifying and beautiful. Yep. The monster. The monster. Exactly. I mean, you know, yeah. Yeah. And and I think what we have in college and in, in, in high school too, what we have in education with young people is a training ground for that, right? And so some some of these students will do theater, will be in theater groups and drama clubs and have those literal experiences. But our classrooms, even if we're teaching history or English mm-hmm. literature or chemistry, should also be a space where we say to the students and they say to each other, I got your back. (laughs) And, and some of this, a lot of this is new to all of us and we're going to experiment. We're going to try. Sometimes we're going to get it wrong, but we have each other and, and that, that we also have fun. And so when it does go well, it's exhilarating. So here's why it's also crucial, which is what, what we know about the future of work, what we suspect about the future of work is the idea of cross competency among mm-hmm. humans is it. That's that's it. The ability to storytell and make people understand I have this this very specific channel knowledge, which is why which is why a computer is not doing this particular job. Yeah. You have a specific channel knowledge, which is why a computer is not doing your job. But we don't necessarily are going to know what those things are. So when we get in a room together, probably with our computers. Mm-hmm. The crucial thing will be piecing all that together, which is going to require very agile communication. It's going to require all those things that we talk about in our work, which is like ceasing judgment of self and judgment of others, yeah. uh, practicing sort of re- resilient behaviors, allowing what might be a con- like a dumb idea to sort of live in the air for a little while and then mm-hmm. realize that maybe that's not so dumb. And that's hard stuff. It is. It is. And and also, I would add in that beautifully uh, arranged mix, intolerance of uncertainty, and yes. and and also the sociality. And I think, you know, what's what's a real challenge right now, and especially right now, <laughs> um, is that so many of our young people went through really crucial social development in lockdown, right? And so yeah, on yeah, our yeah. college campuses, sophomores, juniors right now had their junior, senior experience in high school so disrupted. And and so- I can't, uh, all right, I can't imagine because I know how unprepared I was without mm-hmm. that going in as a freshman. Yeah. I yeah. was an effing mess. It's hard. It's hard. And I think I think that- we're going to help this this cohort through, <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah. I can tell you, you know, on my own campus and and talking to lots of people on other campuses, everyone's throwing everything they they have at supporting these students, and and then hopefully the fact that students now are having more typical experience, more in person, more social experiences in high school will will help us, uh, and we can move them even higher. My 25-year-old son who wants to be an actor and is doing some of that right now oh, talks great. about the fact he's like, 
man, we're going to see some really bad plays about lockdown. And then there's maybe <laughs> one great play. We're like, oh, that person got it. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Us, but you know, we have to wait through some really bad plays about this. It's <laughs> such a unique experience that these people right. had together. And they're going to, and they're going to have to, they should. I wrote down a note here when we were talking earlier that I want to mention, because we talked to Je- Jeffrey Cohen about his book, Belonging, which is mm-hmm. terrific. If you had, like, it's really good. And he talks at a study around mentors and that yes. really good mentors, 80% of their talking are questions. Huh. Yeah. I loved that. Yep. Because that's that other sort of beautiful teaching element of like, I'm not here to tell, I'm not here to tell you, and I might not even know, especially for right. tricky stuff. So how can I, through my, my questions or my prodding or whatever it is, and this was the, the best teachers I had were like, I like, cause it, you know, you're interpreting a book. So my, my, I mentioned I was an independent scholar. I actually, I, when I was on the, on the bus yesterday, going from the talk back to the hotel and I was with all the teachers who I spoke to, mm-hmm. they were asking me about my college experience and they're like, well, what was your independent scholar uh, uh, thing about? And I said, and this is literally true. I reframed the beat generation to be inside the canon of American literature as opposed to outside the canon of American literature. And it's such a nerdy thing for me. And I'm saying this to you as a nerd, but, (laughs) uh, but it was, but I I felt it made sense because I was like, dentalists uh, like Kerouac and Ginsburg and all those guys like that. No, that they were doing the same thing just with a different kind of language and a different beat, Mm -hmm. uh, so to speak. And one of the greatest gifts I had too, was when I was, early on working on the thesis, which ended up being like an 800 or a 185 page thesis. Wow. Um, yeah, it was a real deal. Um, uh, Allen Ginsberg collected poems had come out and he was on book tour. And I convinced my dad to interview him on his radio show. Oh, and, I wow. with him. and then uh, I got to sit in a cafe for five hours with Allen Ginsberg talking what? about his work. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And, and it, and again, it was, it was, um, I say all this in terms of the gifts I was given uniquely in terms of my upbringing where I was that like, oh, I got to like do that, you know, right, with, right. with a historic figure and, and not and not be scared by it, which is interesting that then I ended up in the career I had, which is I work with a ton of famous people, not when they're famous. <laughs> I mean, they become famous later and I'm still yeah. friends with them and I de- you know, so it like I hang with a lot of famous people, but it's sort of made, like, I'm not afraid of that. And I'm not intimidated because of course, you know, they're, they're all, they're not just human. Like mm-hmm. they're really human. <laughs> Extra human. Yeah. I mean, just all, you know, like, and people are asking me actually like, what's Tina Fey like? And I'm like, she's like you and me. I mean, she, she's, she's great. She's hilarious, but you know, she's got kids. She's got problems. She's got, yeah. business, she's got a marriage. She's that like, you know, and they, they're all do that. And then on top of there's fame and other stuff, but you know, it is, it's not easy for any of us. Yeah. This thing. Yeah. And I think part of the service you do with the book, and it's something I keep thinking about and want to push more in my work, which is reminding everyone, we don't talk about the hurt. We don't talk about the pain. We don't talk about these things because they feel like stigmas. They're not stigmas. We're mm-hmm. all going through it. Right. Absolutely. Um. So when we have repeat guests on lately, we've been saying, you know, you gave us a yes and story last time you're here. Could you give us a thank you because story this, this idea that we've been studying, which is how do you stay inside a difficult conversation 
And can you do it with gratitude and finding some essence of, of agreement, even if it's the smallest thing possible? So I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you have an experience of, of that that you could share with us. Yes, I was thinking as a bit of a collective thank you because, but of the people who come to my speaking engagements with really challenging questions, uh, mm-hmm. and even when, and maybe even especially when they're kind of jerks about it. <laughs> uh, uh, so I've had a few experiences. I think of uh, one of my first experiences giving a talk to a group that was was a mixed group, wasn't social scientists, right? Mm-hmm. So I grew up as a psychologist and got into teaching and learning and speaking kind of late. And I was used to giving talks just at psychology conferences. Yeah. And so I was used to giving talks to people who wanted to see the data and mm-hmm. who thought experiments and empiricism and all that was very important. And early on, I gave this talk to a group that was all dedicated to social emotional learning. And there's a lot of humanities folks. And I didn't even, and I didn't know the teaching and learning field more broadly yet. And didn't realize I was speaking to this group that really dislikes kind of data (laughs) and sees it. Yeah. As um, you know, as not information that they wanted. And there was one person in particular, um, a gentleman, and he just shocking. He, <laughs> he would object to every like to to all the words. You sure, there was I a guy. Used. You sure yeah. a guy did this? I don't. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Out of yeah. Mm, yeah. All right. Um. And so, like I said, as he asked me what I meant by learning, for instance, and I said, um, <laughs> well, I, well, I'm talking about the acquisition of knowledge and the development of skills. And he said, I don't think that's what learning is. Okay. But he didn't tell me what he thought learning was, but. It, I later delved into this whole world, discovered this whole world of how people are thinking about teaching and learning that was different than how I was thinking about teaching and learning. And I've gotten other, you know, challenges, people asking about how gendered some of my um, teaching advice is, about emotional labor, about how some of my advice, and, and I think is very true, some of my advice uh, varies by positionality of, of the mm-hmm. person and would be bad advice, you know, for, for a BIPOC person or, or someone on the LGBTQ spectrum if they're going up for tenure afterward. And so all of these challenges are very uncomfortable for me in the moment, yeah. Uh, yeah. especially not all of those were were directly antagonistic. Only some of <laughs> some yeah. of them were. But even when they're antagonistic, it's uncomfortable for me. But I always learn from them in the moment, and then also when I when I go on from that moment and do some research and thinking, and it just expands my thinking. Yeah, I had a question in the Q and A last night about allyship from an African American mm-hmm. academic. I give myself a C plus on my answer. Um, and I, and I really, and, and I actually wrote down later, like, I need a better answer to what mm-hmm, she was talking about. Mm-hmm. Cause it's not, you know, improvisation, of course, is, is very rooted in include, it's all inclusion. So that's, that's mm-hmm. an easy, but it's, that's too easy. It's sort of like what, what's, what specifically can get in there and that. And again, you know, we're a couple of white people of a certain age, too, that one has to be aware of, you know, where you are in the conversation. But I think what we, what we know is um, the only, the the only way we do this is all of us doing it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, all of us, I mean, that guy, the obnoxious guy who wouldn't tell you what learning was and didn't (laughs) like your definition. Yeah. It's him too. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and, and then, and I think this is just broadly true in my experience too, which is, um, 
the people we experience online who are farthest away from potentially our ideology, they they are overweighting what the reality is as we walk through the world because we're probably talking to a bunch of people and having really lovely interactions with people who also don't agree with our politics. Yep. <laughs> I think I think we all forget that it's like that is happening a lot and you just don't know. Right, right. Yeah. And you can only you can only go out and listen and read and talk to people and just yeah, deepen your understanding of the world and other people's perspectives. It's what all this is about. Yep. It's a really important book. I am putting everyone, you, you get this. This is this is a book, whether you have kids or not, the, this is about the future. This is about what we're all sort of working on right now. It's called Mind Over Monsters, Supporting Youth Mental Health with Compassionate Challenge. Sarah Rose Cavanaugh, so great to have you on the pod. That was a joy. Thank you. Getting the SAN is produced by Second City Works and WGM Radio. Our editor and producer is L.F. Garris. We get support at the Second City from Jenny Crowley, Abby Bumblebear, Mike Farinaccio, and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you have questions, guest ideas, or if you want more information on working with Second City Works, you can go to www.secondcityworks.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
Survive